1: Thank you for joining us for Political Rewind today. Glad to have everybody with us. We've got a a really terrific show lined up for you today. Uh, We're going to talk a lot about Georgia's preparedness, especially medical preparedness for the coronavirus, which is expected to continue peaking in our state in the weeks ahead. Uh, Before we introduce our panel, just a few of the top stories in the news Georgia, the Department of Public Health reported last night at 7 p.m., now has 4,748 cases of coronavirus. That's up 631 in 24 hours. Uh, There have been, sadly, 154 deaths as of 7 o'clock last night. That's up 29 in 24 hours. And uh, the virus continues to spread across the state. It's now in 142 counties, which is up three counties from uh, the night before. And remember, of course, that these figures lag behind by a couple of days. So they're giving us a picture of the immediate past, not where we stand today and certainly not where we'll be in the days ahead. Of course, the biggest news out of Georgia in the last 24 hours came when Governor Kemp held his news conference last evening and uh, announced this about the next steps the state will take.
2: We are taking action to protect our hospitals, to help our medical providers, and prepare for the patient surge that we know is coming. This action will ensure uniformity across jurisdictions for Georgia sheltering in place, and help families and businesses be able to comply with its provisions. We will publish the order tomorrow and issue detailed guidance so Georgians can get prepared.
1: Governor Kemp has been under a lot of pressure to issue a statewide uh, shelter-in-place order. Finally did it yesterday late afternoon. Uh, his office uh, told me a little while ago that they expect probably by mid-afternoon they'll have the specific orders and all the details of what's involved. And then the shelter-in-place uh, uh, will take, start on Friday morning. All right. All that said, let's get to our Panel for today. It's Thursday, which is Kevin Riley's day to frequently appear with us on Political Rewind. You know that Kevin Riley is the editor of the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Kevin, thank you for being with us today.
3: As always, Bill, it's good It's good to be here, but I actually really miss seeing you in person. Not as much as I miss seeing your producers in person, but still, I miss seeing you in person.
1: <laughs> well, thank you for that, Kevin. Let's hope that it will not be all that many weeks away when we can all be back on our jobs in, in the studio for Political Rewind. Uh, Carrie Teagarten is with us as well today. She's an investigative reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You know her most recently because of the... Uh, major series that she and her colleagues did on uh, it problems, serious problems in assisted living facilities across the state. Carrie, thank you for being here.
0: Thanks so much, Bill.
1: Um, and we're and, also, and Kevin, Carrie, and I are really here today to be able to talk with uh, John Halpert, Uh, the CEO of Grady Memorial Hospital, and uh, just as relevant to our conversation today, a member of Governor Kemp's uh, coronavirus task force working specifically in the area of emergency preparedness. Uh, John, it's really a pleasure to have you join us, and, and I'm grateful to it because I'm sure as you prepare Grady's next steps in all of this, you're very, very busy. So thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today.
2: That's my pleasure, Bill. Thank you for having me.
1: Um, Let me start, and then Kerry and Kevin will jump in on on questions. Uh, Let me start by asking you, uh, uh, since you are part of the governor's task force, um, the AJC published a major editorial today saying it's about time Governor Kemp acted. There's been criticism that he didn't act sooner. Um, You can say whatever you want about that. But can you help us understand what you think it was that finally convinced the governor that we could no longer have a patchwork of city by city rules about this, but needed a statewide directive?
2: Um, I'd be glad to. Um, I think, you know, we've known for some time that the best prevention is is having people stay in place. The less interaction among individuals, the better. Um, but I think the tipping point, or I know the tipping point for the governor, was the CDC coming out definitively um, stating that one in four infected individuals would not show symptoms at all. Um, And the statistics show that if an infected person is in a a group of other individuals, they have the potential for spreading that to 30 other people. Um, We had suspected and have suspected that Part of the community spread was related maybe to asymptomatic people, but we didn't actually have the proof and or or, or the official word from the CDC till um, the last couple of days. and I know that's what finally um, influenced the governor to make his decision.
3: John, this is Kevin. It, it is fair to say though, that um, while the CDC issued the, that new um, I don't know if you'd call it guidance or opinion or or what the official a uh, uh, term is for it, but it is fair to say that there weren't many questions about how fast this disease spread and how a person could infect many people and do it without showing any symptoms, right?
2: Um, yes, I, I agree with that statement. I think um, we had, you know, this is a lot of unknown territory. Um, And I think we have gone in a short period of time from not even suspecting community spread to better understanding it. Um, But we have known now for at least a month that the best thing we can do is to isolate people from one another and to reduce the number of contacts that um, people have with each other.
1: Uh, John, let me ask you a personal question, if I might. Um, I think a lot of us out there, we understand the notion of sheltering in place, but that doesn't mean we're not going to the supermarket uh, to pick up food. I don't know, maybe once a week doesn't mean we're not going for walks, that sort of thing. So here's my personal question. How are you uh, uh, dealing with a shelter in place order? what's your daily life like right now? Or are (laughs) you in a situation where you have to be at Grady Hospital every day?
2: Uh, Yeah, it's kind of hard to run a major medical center from home. Um, So, yes, I am here at Grady every day and for long hours every day. Um, We have um, a disaster command structure um, within Grady that we fired up um, about a month ago, Um, and I'm a member of that. I don't lead it. Um, our, Our chief clinical officer is the leader of that disaster task force. But I am here um, because of the delicate nature of the disease, and us being a major academic medical center. I am not one of the individuals that is out and about um, throughout the hospital for safety purposes. Um, we need to we, we need to make sure nobody who works here gets the disease. Um, but there's not a reason for me to go out and expose myself uh, unnecessarily. And so the key the key officers within our command structure. Pretty much are within that that disaster center all day.
1: So I guess then let me follow up, and then, Carrie, I want to give you a chance to jump in. Okay. Um, when we talk about sheltering, I want to know if it's okay for me. As many people wonder, can I go to the supermarket once a week? Is maintaining a safe six foot social distance likely to protect me? Uh, should I start wearing a face mask? What what are what are the best Uh, pieces of advice we can have on on just how we deal with things like that?
2: Well, you know, people still have to go to the grocery store. Um, Some people still have to go to very important medical appointments. And I think the same advice that's been in place from the beginning of this pandemic holds true. Maintain six feet or more between individuals. Um, Wash your hands frequently. Um, We know that this is not an aerosolized um, virus, it is a a droplet contact virus. So you have to assume that wherever you are and whatever you're touching could be contaminated, even if you know better, Um, but always assume it is, and always assume the person six feet ahead of you is infected and be super cautious. Um, I personally, um, you know, there's been mixed reviews on whether people should wear masks or not, and or cloth mask. I think increasingly the research is coming down on on doing that. I, it only would make sense to me if I'm headed to the grocery store that I, I would wear a mask um, just to be super safe. Um, it depends on the kind of mask, but protection is protection. Um, and what you really want is the person who may be symptomatic and made the bad choice to go out in public to be masked because if they happen to sneeze or cough, you want um, the droplets that come from that to be captured by their mask.
1: Right. Okay. Carrie, you want to jump in? Yes. Um, John,
0: I've been writing a lot about the frontline workers and what they've been up against and their anxieties and all the the really just intense feelings and worries that those folks have, including, you know, doctors taking to Twitter, talking about updating their wills and that kind of thing. Talk about what your employees are going through and where you are in being able to get them the PPE, the, the protective equipment that they really need, and how you feel as the person calling people in to work every day.
2: Sure. Um, that's a great question, Carrie. Um, there is a high degree of anxiety among healthcare workers. Um, When you stop to think about the numbers and types of individuals that interact with a patient on a given day, it's not just nurses and doctors, but it's housekeepers and unit secretaries and respiratory therapists and pharmacists. There's a a huge array of health professions interacting with patients. Um, They know who the positive patients are, and so in particularly the, the, the staff that works on our respiratory isolation or critical care units, um, prob- all I know is feeling more anxiety than others. We have put a number of measures in place to support our staff. I made the decision early on to provide all of our staff within the hospital or our ambulatory centers that has any form of patient contact to provide them with N95 mask and goggles. Um, at that point, some people probably thought that was kind of like wearing belts and suspenders. Um, today, all of a sudden, we're really smart about the fact that we did what we did. Um, was turned out to be the right thing. Um, providing our staff with the PPE, they need to remain safe, um, and having it available is a major game changer. We have literally moved heaven and earth to get the PPE integrated that we think we're going to need and and have done a good job of that. We feel good about it. Um, you know, the the predictions around the the spike in volume is just around the corner. Um Bill and I have talked about this before, but we, we both Bill is using and the healthcare industry has really um focused in on a prediction tool out of the University of Washington. Um and when you go on to that data and look at it, it is very sobering um indeed. Um but back to our staff, um we are also providing um um Um, grief sessions and also um, having our staff psychologists and chaplains interact with groups of employees um, as needed and or every day those folks are out and about talking with the staff, helping allay their fears. And then we have established um, through my office um, very regular communication, um, being honest, forthright, sharing with the staff Um, what the numbers are, what it looks like, what to expect, what the latest research is, communication is key.
0: Can I ask a follow-up question on communication? Or do you want to move on?
1: Go ahead. Go ahead.
0: Just in terms of communicating, we found it a little bit hard to get information from some of the Atlanta hospitals about their patient volumes. Is that something that you feel like it needs to be kept confidential about how many patients you have? Um,
2: uh not really. I mean, uh, well you and I have worked together before. I'm kind of an open book. Mm-hmm. Um, um I I don't think so. I think we have seen uh every single health system in this market including Grady step up and be ready. Um, you know, the fact that we were asked to cancel um and, and not perform elective surgeries or elective procedures has created significant bed capacity within uh, the the Atlanta MSA. And so many of the hospitals that normally don't deal with major emergencies or trauma um, are reporting significant numbers of beds available. So I think everyone within the market has been responsible, uh, as far as hospitals, about becoming available and going above and beyond to make sure they're stocked with the supplies that are going to be needed as this volume i um, spikes, but, I, you know, for me um, and, and for Grady, we're, we're fine with sharing information.
0: Thank you.
1: Well, then, with that in mind, how many, corona, how many coronavirus cases are you treating in, at the hospital at this moment?
2: So um, since we started um, testing, um, you know, around the middle of March, um, we have diagnosed 86 positive uh, patients. Um, currently, um, we have, of the 86 positive, 42 are currently in the hospital, meaning the remainder are at home and weren't, weren't um, ill enough or exhibiting symptoms to be hospitalized. And out of that 42 patients that are today at Grady, eight are in critical care. The remainder are on either our step-down or med surge units.
1: Thank you for sharing that with us. Kevin, I know you want to jump back in.
3: Yeah, I want to go back to uh, your conversation, uh, John, about your staff. And let me tell you why. As Carrie pointed out, she's written a lot of stories about the impact on, on frontline healthcare workers. And one thing that's happened as a result of that is I've gotten lots of feedback from people um, who read the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and, and I'm sure a lot of people listening here, um want to know what they personally can do to help. And, uh, you know, like I had a guy email me yesterday who said, I want to bring Krispy Kreme donuts to, to a certain group at a certain hospital, and please tell me who I should call, you know. And we've sort of guided them in a slightly different direction than that. Um, I've also had a friend who works for Grady joke uh, uh, that the, the people started talking about the COVID-19, which means the COVID-19 pounds people are going to put on because they're <laughs> getting so much food. So, I mean, I know there's been a lot of, of that, like let's provide meals and, and let's keep restaurants working. But, but from your point of view, for the people listening and the people reading our newspaper, what is most helpful to do to support the folks working at, at Grady?
2: Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, we have had a lot of, of entities, foundations, corporations come forward offering lunches and food, and that has made a great difference. Um, uh, we always joke in healthcare that one thing we, we do like to do is eat and that food goes a long way in a hospital. And so we, we, our community relations department has now turned into the um, um, food police, so to speak, Um, And so we have coordinated those efforts from the community, and and to be honest, Kevin, that really has made a huge difference, the fact that people would go to such an extreme to be supportive of the workers. I I tell you the other thing that um, – it may seem interesting to you all, but the trend that started in Midtown of at 8 o'clock, everyone going out on their balconies and patios and applauding healthcare workers at shift change, it's more, to me, the moral support, the compassion toward healthcare workers, um, corporations that go out of their way to help healthcare workers get the groceries they need. Um, making child care available. Um, you know, the health care workers have been exposed to the same thing as everyone else. They may have a spouse that has lost their job, um, and now they're the sole provider in the family. Um, you know, we're seeing it all. But compassion, support, understanding, um, letting the health care worker, um, in line at the grocery store is a great thing to do, um, but food does go a long way. We we are trying to control the ones and twos from an infection control point of view, um, um, but we've also had entities like the Atlanta Opera and the Alliance Theater repurpose their costume shops to make cloth masks that we put over our N95 masks to keep them clean so that they'll last longer.
1: Um I'm really glad uh, that uh, Kevin asked that question about how the community can get engaged. And thank you for your answer on that, John. Let's do this. Um, I want to take our first break. but. We, John, you, you said, uh, you talked about the uh, University of Washington's Institute of Health Metrics that we had both had a, a conversation about in terms of projections into the future of what Georgia can expect. Sure. And I think we need to focus on that in the next segment of the show because it tells us an awful lot about what you at Grady, hospitals, and other medical facilities around the state are going to have to be prepared for in the days and weeks ahead. So let's take our break, and when we come back, we'll turn to that. This is Political Rewind.
3: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else.
1: Welcome back to Political Rewind. John Halpert, the CEO of Grady Memorial Hospital, is with us. He's also a member of the governor's coronavirus task force, serving on the uh, emergency preparedness uh, team that's helping uh, guide the governor's decisions. Kevin Riley and Carrie Teagarden of the AJC are here as well. Before we uh, get to our next subject, a quick program note. uh, Tomorrow on Political Rewind, Dr. Carlos Del Rio will be with us. He's been a major major uh, figure in talking about the spread of this infection in Georgia, and he's been one of the people who uh, uh, has urged uh, Governor Kemp to take statewide action for weeks now. That's brought him a great deal of criticism from some and uh, praise from others who have been appreciative of his efforts to get the governor to act, which of course Governor Kemp now has done. So Carlos uh, uh, Del Rio joins us on tomorrow's Political Rewind. All right, uh, John Halpert, um, you are paying close attention to the University of Washington's studies, projections uh, on what might happen in the weeks ahead in Georgia. They, of course, model for the entire country. But let me just go over a few of the figures and, and ask you to comment uh, as you want to on this. So according to them, we are still 22 days away from the peak of resource needs in Georgia. They say that will come on April 24th. And they say that what that's going to mean by the peak date is that we will need 10,202 hospital beds that rate that they expect there'll only be 8300 beds. So that leaves an 1800 bed shortage, but perhaps more important They say that we'll need fifteen hundred thirty ICU beds by April twenty fourth, and that on that date we're likely to have only five hundred eighty nine beds available, meaning nine hundred forty one beds are are, we're short of nine hundred forty one beds. And then, uh, just to really uh, deal with the grimest, most grim aspects of this, they're suggesting that by August fourth, we could have as many as thirty two hundred thirty two deaths from COVID-19 in the state of Georgia. And they put the peak of that right around April 25th, and it tapers off by June 1st uh, that we'll have almost no deaths. And it's also right around June 1st that we'll have maybe one or two new cases of the disease. So, uh, John Halpert, uh, how does all that sound to you? And what does it tell you about the immediate future at Grady and around the state?
2: It tells us several things, Um, particularly going back to the numbers you quoted around available hospital beds and ICU beds. What it informs us is what we have to do across the state in hospitals to create additional capacity. Um, The good news is, is every hospital has what is called a surge plan. Um, For example, here at Grady, um, our our routine surge plan can be implemented um, at the flick of a switch and we begin to utilize areas that are non-traditional for inpatient areas um, as inpatient rooms and or critical care beds. Um, We can create um, quickly 150 to 250 additional beds. I know that across the state, um, hospitals, Um, Are are, already have plans, um, given that we have curtailed elective surgeries to turn their operating rooms um, into critical care units. Um, Anesthesia machines can be utilized as ventilators, and so we can achieve significant capacity of ICU beds by by making that move. And then by implementing our surge um, capacity, um, we can get the number of non-critical care beds we need. Um, To your number on ventilators, um, I know that GEMA, the Georgia Emergency Management Group, as well as the Georgia Hospital Association, are continuously inventorying the number of ventilators in hospitals. Um, I can't at this moment tell you where that stands compared to the 1,224 needed. Um, I, I will tell you from my own point of view that is an area of concern for me. Um, From a Grady perspective, um, when this disease first evidenced itself, um, we began to procure and stock up on ventilators. Um, We have tried to use the university, or we have used the University of Washington projections to determine how many ventilators we think we will need. Um, And based on those projections, um, we think we will be okay. I think as a state, um, we could be short Um, And I'll I'll wrap that up with just one other comment. We have seen in the last week uh, the federal government um, coming in and taking over the supply of ventilators, um, including the new ventilators coming off the the line at the different manufacturers, um, those being acquired by FEMA and diverted away from open purchase orders um, to hospitals. and, and with the assurance that we will have the ventilators when we need them, um, we've also heard that same quote come from the daily briefings from the White House. Uh, I am a little concerned that if every state needs them at the same time, will there be enough?
0: John, yeah. I'm wondering uh, Carrie, you want to jump in. Yeah, if, if FEMA is also kind of starting to control the PPE supply, I'd heard that... Some people who thought they were getting PPE weren't, and then it's how much control do you have over the PPE supply?
2: Um, uh, here again, I'll speak for Grady, but we've not seen any of our orders of PPE or orders that we have placed with non-traditional vendors that we've not utilized in the past diverted. Um, so we we have been receiving uh, that PPE. Um, Fulton County, for example, s- um, set up their their emergency command structure, and they have been stocking PPE. The state has stocked PPE. So we have not seen – Grady has not seen that diverted. What we have seen diverted is ventilators.
1: Uh, you know, Kevin, what's interesting about the ventilator situation is um, – John just talked about the number of ventilators that uh, uh, University of Washington thinks will be needed uh, by April 24th. Uh, It's the one area where it doesn't say anything about how many ventilators may be on hand. It tells us how many beds are going to be on hand and the shortage there, how many ICU beds. But it simply says the state is going to need 1,224 ventilators, and there is no figure on how many we may have at that point, which points, Kevin, I think, to the fact that, as John said, there's terrible concerns about where ventilators are coming from and how widely they'll be available.
3: In fact, um, Bill, this morning on our front page, we have a story about um, hospitals beginning to wrestle with how they might make the difficult choices between uh, patients or or when there simply aren't enough ventilators. And, John, I'm assuming that is something very much on your mind. I know that it's not a comfortable topic But if your doctors and and your organization is faced with that dilemma, have you begun to wrestle with how you might handle it?
2: Um, Yes, we have. Um, I think uh, here again, a John Hopper opinion, I think it would be irresponsible for a hospital not to have at least begun that discussion. Um, We call those crisis standards of care and what are the standards of care that would be in place should... Um, physicians be pushed to the point of having to make those decisions. Our position at Grady is we we are not at this point going to make a decision like that on the behalf of a family or a patient, but in collaboration with a family or patient. Um, but I think you, uh, well, I know you do have to have thought through what that is going to look like. Grady has a full-time bioethicist um on staff who works here that she is a ethicist and we have an ethics committee that she is already working with to come up with those guidelines. Um, We are talking as a hospital community um, daily um, about numerous things, that being one, that if that had to become an issue that that was standardized as much as possible across um, the state or across at least the Atlanta MSA um, here again, you know, my motto has been, we have to plan for the worst and hope for the best. Um, but we do have to have a plan in place should that happen.
1: Um, did, can you tell us, I, I, I mean, I don't know to the extent that you are in daily contact with the folks in the who are the ethicists on this. W- what are some of the factors? The AJC listed some of them in the article today, but um, if for instance, this is not necessarily one of the considerations the AJC uh, pointed out, and I don't have the article in front of me right now, unfortunately, is that uh, decisions shouldn't be made necessarily on the basis of age, although there should be some consideration for whether a person has had a chance, as the AJC put it, to live a full cycle of life, that sort of thing. What, what are the kinds of considerations? I know it's a difficult subject, but, it, but if you can speak to it briefly, it would be helpful.
2: I'm um, sure, and you know at, at a little bit of a higher level, it's really looking at that point in time, if the care being provided to that individual based on all all indicators you have, including age, but not just age, um, if the care has gotten to the point of being futile, that there's no chance of recovery for the patient and or death would be imminent. Um, you know, there was a story um, on one of the news shows I watched this morning about a 104-year-old who um, who had been hospitalized, was critically ill, and came through it in flying colors. I think we have to be careful, incredibly careful about using age only. Um, I think um, another thing to share is that we, the patients we see that are ending up in the ICU with COVID-19, all have underlying other medical conditions. And what we're seeing is patients that have end-stage renal disease, um, diabetic patients, um, diabetes coupled with other respiratory issues and obesity um, being complicating factors, Um, patients who are under active treatment for a malignancy, um, currently in chemotherapy or radiation therapy, um, having an immune, comp- uh, an, a compromised immune system being in that condition. Um, it is rare to find a perfectly healthy individual with no complicating factors ending up in the ICU. Carrie, and, do you want to jump in? Yeah,
0: I was just sort of wondering if you have a sense yet of people who are going into the ICU are able to come out of it.
2: Um, yes. Um, uh, you know, I. We have had a number of people come out of the ICU, or actually the majority who have gone into the ICU have come out of the ICU Hmm. and then moved into step-down care um, or onto one of the med surge units. Um, We have had um, four patients who have died, and we we, we look at every single death of a patient at Grady um, to determine if the death was preventable or possibly preventable, and in those cases those clearly were not. Another trend we're seeing, which is troubling, is the number of patients being brought to hospitals by ambulances who are in full cardiac arrest. Mm -hmm. Um, There are always people coming to hospitals by ambulance who are in cardiac arrest, but we have seen that number spike, Um, and the majority of those patients in full cardiac arrest um, are not going to survive. And so it either points to that incremental volume in cardiac arrest being COVID-related and the, the symptoms advancing quickly and or the individual not seeking care when they, they should have. Um, you know what, that gives me a great opportunity.
0: I was just going to ask, are there any worries that what you just said, that you know this idea of urging people not to come to the hospital um, – maybe playing into that at all, or?
2: Um, I think, well, you know, that's hard for me to say. Um, I think if if you are truly ill, you know, the truly ill person is supposed to come to the hospital. Mm -hmm. Um, I will tell you, we have a number of patients every day who show up at the ER, and we we screen every patient before they come into the ER for Mm -hmm. clinical indicators and temperature, and the majority have none of the above and are simply appearing because I want to get that test, and that's really not what ERs are for. Mm -hmm. ERs are for people who are sick, and we do have patients who present that have a fever, have symptoms. We've created a special um, area within the ER um, that is is for those patients to be worked up and to be determined whether or not um, they are positive and or have more advanced systems. Um so far, the vast, vast majority of the patients who end up in that zone are going home um, and, are, and are determined not to have it. But you've got to remember we're still in flu season. The pollen count in Atlanta is through the roof. Um, simple and regular pneumonia still occur, So we're having to differentiate all the above between those and COVID as well.
1: So um, be- before we have to take a break, um, the fact that you said, John, that you have had people in ICU, thank goodness, that have been released successfully, uh, leads me to Sam burmas Dawes listened yesterday to the Doherty County Daily update uh, on what's happening in that hot spot of the virus down there. Uh, the chief medical officer, Dr. Stephen Kitchen uh, gave the briefing, and he talked about the fact that they had had two uh, patients released in good health from ICU from the day before. Tom, let's listen to soundbite number three in which Kitchen talks about how that, how that made his staff feel. And uh, the depth of the celebration by our staff was just, I, I, I mean, they were lining both sides of the hall. They were cheering. They were crying, and um, I, I think this is um, this is an
0: event that we are hopeful is going to be repeated, not only at Phoebe Put- Putney
2: but across every hospital that we see.
1: Uh, John, I imagine you relate very specifically to that.
2: Oh, absolutely, absolutely.
1: All right, let's get our final break of the show. Can you give us another ten minutes, John?
2: Oh, absolutely.
1: Oh, terrific. All right, let's do this. Kevin Riley, Carrie Teagarden, and I will be back with more with John Halpert after this break. Uh, Kevin Riley, we know that Grady Memorial Hospital is one of the uh, most uh, important. Uh, public hospitals, charity hospitals—if you will use that word—John Halpert may not like that word a lot, but <laughs> but it is a word that uh, serves the underserved. And Kevin, uh, I think that raises issues about uh, how the hospital uh, is able to uh, to continue. Uh, keeping its budget in some control, Kevin, I would think that that's an issue that we're all going to be paying attention to and uh, that you'll be reporting on in your paper.
3: Yeah. In fact, John, let me let me go to that. I mean, I know that we all know that Grady occupies a unique and special place in Metro Atlanta for all kinds of reasons. And um, so, I mean, for example, there's this conversation about the Fulton County Jail, and I, I would predict that if the decision is made to handle very sick people coming out of that jail, that will that will come your way. We also reported today that I think you told the county commissioners yesterday that it could be pretty rough financially to the tune of uh, 70 or 80 million dollars uh, in terms of uh, of a loss or, you know, however you describe that. I mean, uh, more expense than revenue. So um, I know that you don't turn people away. I know that at a time like this, a man in your position does not talk budget. But prepare people listening to this show for the the cost and the implications of what's going on.
2: Sure. And I, I think I, I like the way you said that, Kevin. In a time like this, the last thing you want to talk about is the bottom line because it, in a crisis and in a pandemic, you know, the budget's kind of irrelevant. Um, but um, you're going to hear from every hospital in this country that there's going to be a devastating impact on their bottom lines. Number one, by having curtailed elective procedures and, and surgeries, which from a payment perspective are the, are the higher paying, better paying, uh, margin producing parts of a healthcare enterprise. So there's a huge impact there, and then the increased cost of supplies. We're estimating... Um, that just from a, uh, not equipment, but a medical supply perspective um, related to COVID alone, we will spend an additional $40 million um, on COVID-related PPE and medical supplies above and beyond what we had budgeted.
1: And what's important about that figure, uh, John, is that... Of all that you've accomplished at Grady since UK, you arrived in 2013?
2: I forgot that. Um, 2011.
1: 11. Oh, okay. Uh, I mean, the thing that you have uh, accomplished that people uh, 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 say has been one of the best things about your administration is that you have been able to uh, get the – The hospital's finances back on firm ground after many years of struggling to get the funding it needs and to be able to take care of itself. So you're back in a hole based on this and very likely you are going to have to turn again to the counties to uh, help you recover. Yes,
2: Um, possibly. As I shared with the Fulton County commissioners yesterday, that may happen but we want that to be the last thing we have to do. There are a number of provisions within the uh, $2 trillion um, CARES Act that was passed by Congress that apply to hospitals and health providers. What we're waiting for um, is guidance from the federal government on how those funds will be utilized. And so we know there will be significant assistance um, two hospitals from that we just don't know what that is yet it's too early to know and so we're looking at every element of the cares act um, to determine what financial support there is before we come out and declare the deficit to be X and we need help from the counties uh
3: john let me let me go back to uh, your role at, on the uh, governor's task force for a second um, you know we we did a story today about testing, which, of course, is an issue, and I want to hear a little bit on what you think about where that's going. But as we sit here today, Georgia is 11th in the country in terms of cases per capita. We are seventh, ranked 7th in deaths in the country. I know those numbers move around a little bit each day, depending on when states report and, and all that. We also know they lag a little bit, as Bill pointed out at the top of the show, but we are 44 first in the country in getting tests done. I mean, wh- how do, where's the task force on that? And what do you think the future holds there? I mean, looking at those three figures.
2: Yeah, so so several elements to that. And so, uh, you know, this entire country went into this pandemic totally unprepared to test the population or having the capacity for testing through public health government sources as compared to many other countries. Um, We have seen in some other countries much greater percentages of the population being tested. And back to that statistic we quoted earlier, if 25% of the people are asymptomatic that have the disease, how do you know that if you're not testing? And so that has been a major downfall in the US um, as far as how a pandemic should be managed. I will, um, from a task force and a Georgia point of view, one of the first things the governor and his team jumped on was what is our testing capability and what can we do to improve it, knowing that we were starting in a hole. Um, He assigned the commissioner, um, insurance commissioner, John King, to lead a task force on getting testing ramped up as fast as possible, and I was involved with John on that. Um, We immediately turned early on to the commercial labs who were advancing testing quickly um, to gain capacity, but at this point, we're, you know, up against the rest of the country trying to get that testing capability. And as a country, we're behind the curve, as a state, we were behind the curve. Uh, the public health state infrastructures across the country were never designed to or never funded or designed at a level to take on a pandemic like this. Um, that is why you pro- though I know that is why you saw many of the health systems, including Grady, we stood up now two weeks ago, our own internal testing capability, um, where it was taking the state days um, to uh, return tests results to the hospitals. We can now do that um, on one of our machines in four hours and another in eight. And so we are doing all of our own testing and actually have begun doing testing for Children's Health Care of Atlanta and some other entities as well. Boy, John, that strikes me as me.
0: I'm just wondering if there are supply limits on your ability to do your tests or can you just handle all of them?
2: Um, No, we we now have uh, the Ability to perform about 900 tests a day because of the availability of, of um, equipment specific test kits and reagents, um, we're capped at around 200 to 250 a day. Mm.
1: I, I think you just made a little bit of news there, John. I, had, I don't think we've uh, seen reporting that Grady is capable. Uh, nimble in terms of uh, turning around that many tests on a, a given day at a time when across the state we're hearing so much about uh, the uh, lack of of test availability and the time it which to takes to turn them around. Thank you for sharing that with us.
2: Well, and I, and I will I will add to that. I know I know for sure that I have knowledge of that. Piedmont has the Piedmont Health System has stood up their own testing capability. Emory Healthcare has as well. But all of us are dealing with the same limitation of available test kits and reagents to maximize our ability.
1: Um, Let's, as we come toward the end of the show, uh, Carrie, let's turn to another aspect of healthcare in Georgia that's being impacted by coronavirus. As I said in at the beginning of the show when we welcomed you, uh, you have done a tremendous amount of work with your colleagues on looking at conditions in assisted living facilities lack of regulation in assisted living facilities by the state and now uh you and your team are looking at how the coronavirus is making an impact in the assisted living facilities around the state can I, i know your piece is not ready to go yet but uh your boss kevin riley says you're welcome to talk a little bit about it can what can you share with us in terms of a couple of headlines
0: yeah, I think my colleague Brad Schrade and I first, our first story, we did the series, and then our first story on coronavirus was about how all the visitation was being limited, uh, which was very heart-wrenching to see people couldn't visit their elderly relatives, thousands of them across the state in assisted living. But we know there, uh, in spite of the best efforts, there have been cracks and outbreaks in um, Many, many facilities across the state, and we're tracking those and deaths. And as uh, John Halpert pointed out, these are some of the folks who are the most vulnerable. And so we'll be amping up our reporting to say exactly how many we facilities are having outbreaks and the impact there.
1: So, John, with that in mind, we know that the governor the other day mobilized the National Guard to go into uh, senior care facilities. I assume some assisted living facilities as well. Uh, I think there are about 100 guardsmen and women who are being assigned to go into these facilities to be of some help uh, to protect those who have not gotten the virus. Do you, in terms of the emergency preparedness team that you work with, know what kind of function they'll be able to play?
2: Um, so, my understanding, um, uh, you, you heard General Tom Carden yesterday um, speak during the press conference, um, and the Major General has been instrumental in mobilizing medical, uh, military medical personnel within the state. Um, Grady was the first hospital to take the, the general up on his offer. We have medics and nurses. Um, and advanced practitioners from the military now working beside us at Grady. And so my, I, I imagine their role will be to review and and strengthen infection control practices um, and to ensure infection control practices are being followed in the nursing homes.
1: Um as we come down to the end of the show, I think I'd be remiss, John, if I didn't ask, and then I'll give Kevin and, and uh, Carrie one last chance. Uh, you talked before about the work that your teams are doing at Grady, your, your, your medical teams, your nurses, your doctors, uh, your, your uh, uh, other folks who are involved day-to-day in the operation of the hospital. Do we have an under, do we know how, do you have among your t- teams positive coronavirus uh, uh, outcomes?
2: Among all of our employees at Grady? Is that what yeah. you're asking? There there are within... Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, there are within um, the Atlanta metro area healthcare workers who have tested positive. We have had very few, um, and it's hard to tell where those were acquired, whether it was community or on the job. Um, but any of our employees that are, have even the slightest semblance of of, um, symptoms are being tested. Um, And those that have tested positive, which is less than five, um, only one required brief hospitalization. All of the others were fairly asymptomatic and were able to go into quarantine and then be checked out. And some have even returned to work.
1: All right, Kevin, we have about two minutes. You wanna, you have a last question?
3: Quickly, John, um, everyone wants to know, when will this be over? And I know from talking to many experts around town that a date is not the answer to that question. But as we look out in the future, what do you think is important to pay most attention to as we try to get out of this crisis?
2: Well, I think the most important element is going to be heavy-duty enforcement of stay-in-place, limiting social interaction, particularly over the next two months. Um, The database that I keep referring to from the University of Washington is showing uh, the number of deaths peaking around April 24th. Um, And then we go on to the back side of this bell curve with still a significant number of deaths, and we show that occurring through the first week of June. Um, But I would not call a victory on the first week of June. Um, I think we are going to have to practice differently um, or interact differently with one another going forward. I think there's parts of this that we don't yet know that are gonna change the way we've lived our lives. Um, and that is still to be seen. Um, but I would say in Georgia, the prediction around the acute um, pandemic um, takes us into the first couple of weeks of June.
1: Right. John, John Halpert, we are completely out. Of You've been terrific to spend this whole hour with us, so thank you very much for that. Uh, Kevin Riley, Carrie Teagarden, thank you for being part of today's show. We're back tomorrow with Carlos Del Rio. See you then.